0: This is Trek FM. Calling frequencies open, this is your Trek FM hyperchannel for Friday, June 6th, 2014. I'm Christopher Jones and we have two stories for you today. Robert Blackman to judge Star Trek Las Vegas costume competition and a new hope for life in space. First up, it takes many talented people to put together a television show like Star Trek. And each of these creatives plays a unique role in the final product. When it comes to costume design, no one has exerted more influence over how we think about Star Trek than Robert Blackman. For nearly two decades now, Blackman has directed the look and feel of Trek's threads. And beginning with TNG's third season all the way through Enterprise, he is responsible for the uniforms as well as the clothing that we see aliens wear. Now he'll be appearing at Star Trek Las Vegas this summer and it apparently is his first con since the early days of modern Star Trek where he actually attended two conventions. At Star Trek Las Vegas he will conduct a Q&A and he's also going to judge the costume contest. As a lead up to the event to help everyone get to know a little bit more about Robert Blackman, star trek.com has published a really fascinating two-part interview. With the costume, genius. I always love it as a creative myself. I always love it when Star Trek.com or anyone else interviews the people behind the scenes, the people who do the costumes, who do the art, who do the music. A lot of fans focus on the actors and they're wonderful as well. And it's great to hear how they approach their characters and how they bring the stories to life. But there's so much more that goes on behind the scenes, and there's so much work that goes into every aspect of a television series, and there are things that we we notice almost subliminally. It's sort of, it's there. You know, if the costumes aren't exactly right, we notice that that feels wrong, or that costume doesn't work. But when they are right, we don't pay as much attention to those details It just feels correct, and therefore we focus on the dialogue and the action and what the characters are doing. So I love hearing from Robert Blackman here, and as I said up front, he worked on Star Trek starting from season three of The Next Generation. He worked all the way through all seven seasons of TNG, also on Generations and on First Contact, on Voyager on Deep Space Nine, and on Enterprise. And there's that connection, of course, between the costumes, the Starfleet uniforms, in First Contact and those that we see midway through DS9 forward. And that's Robert Blackman's work right there. His career with Star Trek spanned nearly two decades, and during that time, he won two Emmy Awards and was nominated ten times for his work on Star Trek. Now, apparently, as we learn in this interview, he's a little bit apprehensive about taking the stage in Las Vegas. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because he hasn't done a lot of cons over the years. But I know everyone that's going to be there at STLV is going to give him a huge welcome, a warm welcome, and is going to be really, really intrigued to learn more about the costume design. So I think he should be really comfortable. He should be really excited because he's going to be walking in to this family who loves his work. Well, there are a number of questions that Star StarTrek.com asks Blackman in this two-part interview. And I'm going to pull out just a couple of them here. There are actually two that I wanted to mention to you. They ask him, what goes through your mind, even contemplating something like this upcoming convention appearance? We ask because there will be hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people running around all weekend, many of them in costumes you designed. Well, first of all, of course, there are going to be thousands at Star Trek Las Vegas. There are going to be thousands of people running around there, and there may in fact be over a thousand people running around in costumes based on designs created by Robert Blackman. I love Blackman's response to this question, though, because it really pays tribute to the fans. And it shows that, of course, he he loves the work that he creates, but he loves how fans receive it even more, I believe. He says, I always marvel at it. They were a little bit more personalized than maybe we'd make them, speaking of the costumes. But so many of the costumes I saw were as good stitch for stitch as what we had done. And there are fans who amaze me, amaze everyone with the costumes they create because they're so good and the detail is there. It's just, they put so much work into them. And I love the fact that Blackman sees that as the actual costume designer for Star Trek, and points it out here in the interview. Now, beyond this, they ask about how he got involved with The Next Generation, and there's a long section about that. They also ask show-by-show questions, walking through his career in Star Trek, with TNG, with DS9, Voyager, and on to Enterprise. Specifically, something that ties into what I mentioned at the beginning here relates to the costumes for First Contact and how those moved on over to Voyager, as well as why we see all these constant costume changes. Star StarTrek.com asked, a lot of the major costume changes came in the wake of First Contact, with the changes carrying over to Deep Space Nine and Voyager, etc. Take us through that window of time. And what Blackman said was that he talked about first contact a little bit first, and then he said, then after that, when they went on to Deep Space Nine, we switched the colors out to make it more serious, to make it darker. So that's where I came up with the quilted shoulder panels and the dark jackets, and then having the division color just as a turtleneck. That came out of wanting to have a new look for the new series. Now, of course, this actually came in the middle of. Deep Space Nine. So I got a little bit disconnected with his answer here. And Generations came first, and of course, they mixed the TNG uniforms that we were accustomed to from the TV series with the jumpsuits that we got at the beginning of Deep Space Nine and which were used throughout Voyager. So he talks about transitioning anyway from First Contact over to DS9 with those uniforms. And he says, and this is what I found interesting, but not surprising. Quite frankly, some of that was driven by the fact that they were looking for ways to keep their ancillary income coming in. They needed a new look so that they could make more toys, make more toys, make more of that stuff. So that's one of the reasons why there was a uniform change with every series. Now that doesn't surprise me at all because, let's face it, everything is driven by merchandising. And I think in the case of the movies, especially going into First Contact, that probably was largely the case that they wanted a new look for that new film. You've got a new ship. Let's get new costumes as well. Let's really give this its own identity. But with Deep Space Nine, I think that the costume change very much served the story. I never really felt like it was all about merchandising or wanting to make new toys. DS9's storyline was becoming darker. They were becoming deeper and deeper into a war. And the costumes that were created for First Contact, they really, really fit Deep Space Nine so well. And when I think of those costumes, I actually call them the DS9 costumes because that's not where they appeared first. But they fit the tone of the series so well, if you think about being in a war, you don't want your characters running around in brightly colored uniforms the The gray shoulders, the black tunics, the jackets, the the color of the of the turtlenecks themselves, which also felt subdued compared to what we had before. it really really fit the character of Deep Space Nine from that point through to the end of the series. I thought they were brilliant. They're actually my second favorite uniforms in Star Trek after the maroon jackets from the Wrath of Khan that were used throughout the rest of the original series films. Those were just beautiful and brilliant costume designs. But so were the ones designed for First Contact and Deep Space Nine. I was never a big fan of the jumpsuits for DS9 that we got earlier on that were used on Voyager. Never really liked those uniforms all that much. I understand why they were created for DS9, and I think that they made sense in an environment where you were going to be crawling around this station, especially as we saw how Miles is trying to get everything working early on. And it was more of a a workman's environment than a starship like the Enterprise. But then they carried them over to Voyager, and I don't know, it gave the show its own look, I suppose, but not my favorite uniforms. So they talk about that. They go on to talk about alien uniforms, which is very fascinating because there were so many interesting alien designs created. Also, they talk about Voyager and they talk about Seven of Nine as well. So if you're into costume design, if you just like to hear directly from the creatives behind the show, go and check this out. It's a two-part interview on Star Trek.com. If you go there right now, you're going to see it right up there at the top on the front page. If you click News, you'll see it as well. But I'll also put links in the show notes for you so you can hop over and find out all about Robert Blackman. And what I would like to know from you is what are your favorite costume designs by Robert Blackman? Which are your favorite alien costumes? And which is your favorite Starfleet uniform? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find the network on there as well. Our account name is Trek FM. And you can find us in many other places, and I'll give you all the contact details at the end of the show. Next, as a Star Trek fan, chances are you would love to wake up one morning to the news that we've discovered other life somewhere out there in the cosmos. And despite our technological advancement, it really feels like a long shot still. I don't think it's a long shot, but when I was a kid, I thought we would probably have discovered something by now. So as each year goes by, I feel more like, hmm, what's going on here? Why don't we find anything? But there could be hope. Dr. Seth Shostak, who is the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute and co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, which is also a radio show on satellite radio, Big Picture Science, recently testified before Congress on this very question. Besides helping these scientifically challenged individuals who run our country and the world understand the subject a little bit better, Seth also predicts that we will find extraterrestrial life, not necessarily intelligent life, but some kind of life out there within a few decades. Now that may surprise you, but Seth says that his prediction is based on scientific advancements right now. And few people know better what we're capable of than he does because, again, he is the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. This is his day job looking for other life in space. As I mentioned, Big Picture Science is one of my favorite podcasts. It used to be called Are We Alone? It is one of the podcasts that I've been listening to longer than any other. I believe I started listening to it back in 2006, It's a wonderful show that's about all areas of science, not just the search for extraterrestrial life. But in the latest episode, which is titled A New Hope for Life in Space, they talk about recent discoveries of other planets. And specifically, they talk a lot about Kepler-186f, which is the planet you may have heard of in the news recently, which is very much like the Earth. It's about 10% larger than Earth. And it's just the right distance from its star to have temperatures similar to Earth. Now, we don't know for sure what the temperatures are because we don't know what the atmospheric conditions of the planet are, for sure, because Kepler isn't designed for that. But based on its location, based on uh, other things that we can tell about the planet, there is a good possibility. And again, it's the first planet that we have found that is so close to the size of Earth and is right there in what we call the Goldilocks zone, that that area in our own solar system where life is possible, where liquid water is possible. I should say liquid water on the surface of a planet, because as we'll talk about in a moment, there is the possibility that there is liquid water locked deep underneath ice in the outer solar system. Well, they talk a lot about Kepler-186f. This planet is 500 light years away from us in the constellation Cygnus. It orbits a red dwarf star. And this discovery, as well as other discoveries of exoplanets, has piqued the interest of Congress as they think about how they fund science, what we should be putting money into, and how these discoveries might impact our society moving forward, which is, I know, it's astonishing to think that anyone in Washington would even think for a moment about how scientific discoveries might impact our society moving forward. It doesn't seem like something that would even cross their minds, but thankfully they did want to know a little bit more about it. And Seth actually recently testified before Congress to answer questions on these topics. In the podcast, they play some of the tape of the testimony that he gave, and it's great to hear how he explains it. I will say that I was a little bit concerned that the way he was explaining it may have gone over the heads of most of the people sitting in Congress, but he did his best to try to explain it in very clear terms, and I think he did a good job. Seth's an extremely well-spoken man. So you can hear some of that testimony if you listen to the podcast. They also have guests on there. They talked to Christopher McKay, who is a planetary scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. And they talked about exploring possible habitable moons within our own solar system, especially Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn. And there's new gravity data from Enceladus that suggests that there is a mammoth reservoir of water beneath the icy skin of that moon. There's actually a plume going out into space which seems to be composed of ice, of actual you know, frozen liquid water shooting out into space. And McKay talks about how easy it would be to send a probe there and fly through that and actually collect some of it. And we can find out what's really going on down there. Now, there are other moons out there as well, Europa, Titan, which are very intriguing because it seems that it's very possible that there is primitive life underneath that ice. I hope within my lifetime we find out because it would really be fascinating to know. Now, other guests on the podcast include Elisa Quintana, who is a research scientist at the SETI Institute and also at Ames. Victoria Siegel, who is Autonomous Systems Engineer for Stone Aerospace Incorporated, and Cynthia Phillips, who is a Planetary Geologist at the SETI Institute. So if you're interested in life out there and the search for it and what we might find, I highly recommend that you go listen to this episode of the podcast. And if you love science, I recommend that you actually subscribe to Big Picture Science because it is a wonderful show. Now, I had Seth here on the network a long time ago. It's hard to believe it's been a couple of years, actually, since I I had Seth on the show. I had him on episode six of my show, Matterstream, and we talked about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence in general, what we might find out there, and we also compared it to Star Trek and how things that we might find might relate to what we as Star Trek fans might be hoping for. So I recommend that you listen to that episode as well. If you go to iTunes or any of the podcast sources and look up Matterstream, you'll be able to access it right there, episode 6. You can also go to trek.fm slash ms6, and you can stream it from the page there as well. So let me know what you think about Seth's prediction that we may find extraterrestrial life, and again, I point out not necessarily intelligent life, within a few decades? Do you think it's possible? Do you think we'll find it? And do you think that it will be intelligent life somewhere far away? Or will it just be simple life here in our solar system? Let me know what you think. I would love to hear from you. Now, I have the usual network update for you here to close out the show. We have two new shows for you today. It's Friday, which means Enterprise and Warp 5. And in this week's show, I'm joined by Tommy Kraft, producer of the Enterprise-era film Star Trek Horizon, to discuss Degra, the Zindi primate scientist that really, really helped Archer save Earth. Degra played a pivotal role in the Zindi arc, and he was modeled after J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, which makes perfect sense as Degra is the father of the Zindi superweapon. So tune into that and find out what Tommy and I have to say about Degra. We also have a new episode of Commentary Trek Stars, and this is the second part of Mike and Max's recap of Larry Nemechik's work. Now, last week, Larry joined them to talk about the TNG Companion and Voyager. And this week, Larry joins them again to talk about stellar cartography, as well as the companion essays that he wrote for the book and how he made sense of the Dominion War. You'll find both of these episodes in your feeds right now if you subscribe to the individual feeds for Warp 5 and Commentary Trek Stars or to the Trek FM Complete Master Feed. And you'll find these anywhere you get your podcasts. It might be iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, Swell, BlackBerry, SoundCloud, wherever it is that you go to get your podcasts. Just search for trek.fm or the name of the show, and you'll find us there. You can also stream or grab the RSS link from our website. If you use iTunes, a really easy way to get to everything is to just type itunes.com slash into your web browser, and that'll open everything right up in your iTunes application. Well, that's our look at the news for today. If you're streaming this show from our site, remember that you can have it delivered directly to your device of choice by subscribing to the Hyper Channel Show Feed or the Treka Film Complete Master Feed, which contains every episode of every show and some special audio content as well. As I mentioned earlier, I'd love to chat with you about the stories today or anything in the world of Star Trek. You can find me on Twitter and everywhere in social media under the username C. Brian Jones, that's the letter C, and Brian with a Y. Twitter is my preferred place to chat, so hit me up there if you're on Twitter. Also, you can find the network there. Trek FM is the username. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. On Google+, just search G Communities for trek.fm and you'll find us. We have traditional forums on our website at trek.fm slash forums. And you can even send us a voicemail through the website. Well, thanks for listening today, everyone. I'll be back tomorrow with some more stories for you. Until then, go watch some Trek.